Thanks for watching this video from Cherry Hills Church. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish. And the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means, defended fishing as an occupation, and declared that fishing is always to be the primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They loved slogans such as, fishing is the task of every fisherman, and every fisherman is a fisher. They sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide congresses to discuss fishing, to promote fishing, and hear about all the ways of fishing, such as the new fishing equipment, fish calls, and whether any new bait was discovered. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. All the fishermen seemed to agree that what is needed is a board which could challenge fishermen to be faithful in fishing. The board was formed by those who had the great vision and courage to speak about fishing, to define fishing, and to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes where many other fish of different colors lived. Also, the board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and the committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology. But the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and given fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters that were filled with fish. Some spent much study and travel to learn the history of fishing and to see faraway places where the founding fathers did great fishing in the centuries past. They lauded the faithful fishermen of years before who handed down the idea of fishing. Further, the fishermen built large printing houses to publish fishing guides. Presses were kept busy day and night to produce materials solely devoted to fishing methods, equipment, and programs to arrange and encourage meetings to talk about fishing. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish, but like fishermen back home, they never fished. Like the fishermen back home, they engaged in all kinds of other occupations. They built power plants to pump water for fish, tractors to plow new new waterways. They made all kinds of equipment to travel here and there to look at fish fish hatcheries. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors, and how loving and kind they were was enough. Imagine how hurt some of them were one day when a person suggested that those who didn't catch fish were really not fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet it sounded correct. 
is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish? Now, in case you missed it, that's not really a story about fishing. It's a story about Jesus' commission to his church to go and make disciples of all nations. And what I love about that story is that addresses some underlying misconceptions I think we have of what disciple-making is, or at least what it's become today. Believe it or not, this word discipleship is a pretty slippery word to try and define. Everybody today has their own definition of what it means. But isn't it true, like if we really bring it back for a second, when you hear the word discipleship, you tend to think of a program that the church offers to help you grow in your faith in Jesus. In other words, discipleship is sort of a passive thing that is done to me or it's done for me. Now, I'm not saying that's not part of what discipleship is, but the underlying thinking of that way of thinking, underlying implication is that it's the church's responsibility to disciple me. And so I become a disciple when I go to church, when I join a life group, when I go to Sunday school, when I attend workshops. And while those things are important, that was never Jesus' full understanding of what it meant to be his disciple. Discipleship is more than just gaining more information about Jesus, getting smarter and more obedient even. It's about learning how to invite others to join Jesus in his mission. If you're following on your notes, I'll say it as clear as I can here, friends. The way of Jesus, what we're studying in this series, is to call disciples who make disciples. This is the mission of every church. It's the very first thing on our mission. We say here, as our mission statement, right? We're growing disciples who make disciples. Why is that our mission? Because that's Jesus' mission. That's one thing to become a disciple, and we want to become disciples. But here's the key. We're not becoming disciples until we're helping other people become disciples. Like the fishermen in the parable, we're not just supposed to talk about discipleship and learn more about discipleship, we're actually supposed to be engaged in discipleship. So let me just address the elephant in the room right now. This isn't just about evangelism. It's not just about sharing our faith with others, though that is certainly a large part of it. Discipleship means learning the way of Jesus, watching Jesus in the Gospels, how he talked to people, how he interacted with people, how he invited people into a relationship with him. And we learn how to follow his way when it comes to discipleship. Now, I'm getting way ahead of myself here. So if you're just joining us, we are in a series called The Way of Jesus, where we're just walking through the gospel of Mark together. And in this series, we're spending time with Jesus, learning from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. And today, we're going to talk about this way of making disciples. So if you haven't already, let me invite you to take your Bible, turn it to Mark chapter 1. We're starting in verse 14 together. If you don't have a Bible, I would invite invite you to grab one of the ones we have available in the seat underneath you there, and you can find this on page 812 of those black Bibles. Let's take a look at this passage. Now, just a reminder, if you were here last week, we heard this incredible good news, that if you are in Christ, you have been given a new identity. It was so powerful. It was so important for us to realize we live out of a new identity that has been given to us by Christ. Today, we move into the purpose of 
of our lives and the new identity we have in him as his followers and as his children. So let's look at Mark 1, verse 14. It says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all, let's just take note of how remarkable it is that Jesus would begin his ministry in Galilee. If you were a politician today, if you wanted to start running for office, where would you start your campaign? Washington, D.C., maybe. Chicago, maybe. Jerusalem would have been the place for Jesus to start his ministry, and yet he chooses Galilee. Galilee is in the middle of nowhere. It's a little po-dunk town. It's three days north of Jerusalem. Politically, it was totally unimportant. Culturally, it was kind of rural and backwards. Sophisticated people in Jerusalem regarded Galileans like Manhattan millionaires used to look down on the hillbillies of Appalachia, right? These were farmers, agrarian people. They didn't travel a whole lot except when they had to travel to Jerusalem for the festivals. But these people, the Galileans, they lived in this desperate anticipation for the kingdom of God. They were waiting for the Messiah. Luke says it this way. They were looking for the consolation of Israel and for the kingdom to come. And it is here that Jesus preaches his very first message Two sentences long. I know what you're thinking right now. Sorry, I'm not going to come through with you on that one. But here's the message. Mark 1, verse 15. Here's the good news of God. Let's read it out loud together from the New Living Translation. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. If you're falling on your notes for Jesus, the good news of God is that the king has arrived and is ushering in his kingdom. In Jesus, the king has come and he's making the kingdom of God available and open to all people. As we saw last week, this is again a reference to when the father says to Jesus, you are my son, quoting Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic text declaring one day the king will come who will be God's very own son and he will restore everything to the way that God intended it to be. And Jesus' first message is, I'm here. I'm here. I am that king, and I'm here to declare the good news that the kingdom of God is coming, it is here, it is near, and I am the king of that kingdom, but not in the way that you're hoping it will come. It will not come by force. It will come by me taking up the role of the suffering servant and by offering my life on a cross so that I might defeat sin and death on your behalf. One day, the king will come in glory. Until that day, his kingdom is being ushered in first by him, now by us as his church, until finally it will be culminated in his return where every knee will bow and tongue confess, Jesus Christ is the king. The kingdom of God. This is the main message that Jesus preaches in the gospels. What does it mean? If you're on your notes, it refers to the rule and reign of God over all creation. And here's the main thing I want you to think about. Whenever you hear the kingdom of God, whenever Jesus teaches about this, I want you to think about it as a verb, not a noun. In other words, this is an action word. 
It's not something that we just look at and go, oh, there's the kingdom of God. No, the kingdom of God is this ongoing thing, right? I said, Jesus brings it. He says, the kingdom of God is near and we're bringing it still today until finally in that wonderful day when he returns, the kingdom of God will be known throughout the world. It will culminate in his victory over all evil, all sin, all death. And in this very first sermon If you're following, Jesus' invitation is to submit to his authority as king. If he is the king, let me invite you into my kingdom. The way you do that is by submitting to the king. And if you're following there, excuse me, he goes on to say, here's how you do that. You repent and believe in the good news. Repentance just means turning away from sin. Jesus said it right there. Belief just means acknowledging our dependence on God. These two things are the same, same, two sides of the same coin, right? To enter into the kingdom simply means I have to acknowledge I like being my own king. And I turn from that. And I look to Jesus and I say, no, you truly are the king who has come. And I'm submitting my life to you and your authority. If you're falling on your notes again, I would put it this way. Receiving the good news comes by turning from your kingdom and trusting Jesus as your king. The root sin of all humanity is we want to be our own God. We want to control our lives. We want to set up our own little kingdoms. We see this with Adam and Eve in the very first sin in the garden, right? But Jesus says, turn from that way of thinking because that can only lead you to death. Instead, turn to me where you will find life. Two weeks ago, we had the opportunity to baptize several people in our church family, right? It's such a beautiful symbol of what this all is. I'm dying as I go under the water. I'm dying to my old way of life, my old way of thinking, my old belief that I'm the king of my life, that I can do whatever I want whenever I want. And I'm raising up, submitting to the authority of the new king, Jesus Christ. That's why we ask that question to everyone who is baptized. Will you make him the Lord of your life this day from now on? That is the key question. Will he be your king today and forevermore? Having announced this kingdom, Jesus now starts to develop a community of followers who want to submit to him as king to his reign and rule and join him in his mission, which is to bring this good news to the whole world. So let's continue the story in verses 16 through 20. It says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Now join me in reading verses 17 and 18 on your notes with me. It says, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. I'll continue. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. As we learned last week, Mark is usually short on the details, and that happens once again here. In Luke's version of this story, we're told that these four guys had been fishing all night, and they came up completely empty. They came back to the shore. They're cleaning their nets. They're exhausted. They're ready to go home. They're disappointed. Jesus shows up and said, hey, guys, let's go out again. Cast your nets one more time. And if you read the story, Simon, also known as Peter, is a little reluctant about this. He's a little annoyed about this, but because of who Jesus is, he does it. 
And they catch so much fish, they can't even carry them back to the shore. And in that moment, Peter just gets on his knees and praises Jesus. Mark skips all that. He goes right to the main point of this story, which is Jesus then saying to them, follow me. That's the invitation in its most simple terms. It's a call. Discipleship is a call to follow Jesus in your life. Discipleship. This was a common idea back in these days. In the early centuries, in the first century, it was common for disciples to follow rabbis. But listen, here's how that worked. You had to be the best and the brightest student possible. And you would have to then approach a rabbi and ask them if you could follow them. I love how our king turns that up on its head and he finds not the best and the brightest, as you know, if you've read the Gospels. In fact, these guys probably had already flunked out of school. That's why they're back fishing. Maybe you don't know that most of them were probably teenagers still at this point. And he goes to them and he asks them, will you follow me? I want you to be my disciple. How many think that's good news for us normal people here, right? Not the best and the brightest. Now, according to John 1, these guys already knew Jesus. They had already probably heard some of his teaching. They knew what John the Baptist had said about him, right? Behold, here's the Lamb of God. Here is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. But in this moment, Jesus asks their kind of being part of the crowd to become actual full-fledged followers of him, to go all in. Set aside all their other priorities, right? I mean, it's a big deal. Set aside your family, your vocation, your financial security. And I want you to become a full-time student of mine. I want you to learn my words, my works, and my ways. And that is the essence of what being a disciple of Jesus is. If you're following on your notes again, discipleship means leaving everything to follow Jesus. Everything. That's what it means to give your life to a king. And in these verses right here, we have one of the most famous acts of obedience in history. I think sometimes we read this and we just marvel because we should, right? Christ comes with this radical message. Listen, I'm the king. The kingdom of God is here. And then he gives them a radical call. I want you to leave everything and follow me. And these four respond in radical obedience. At once, Mark says. They left. They left everything. Now, there's a difference I see today between the crowd and disciples. And Jesus notices the difference, right? A crowd, they're willing to come and hear and listen and receive the good things. A disciple is willing to lay aside everything that might hold them back and follow Jesus. They are all in, no matter the cost. And Jesus says there will be a cost if you're going to go all in and follow me. But here's the problem. There's some nets I want to hold on to. There's some nets I want to hold on to. I don't always want to go all in with Jesus. Have you ever done this? Are there some nets that are holding you back from going all in or being his disciple? If you're on your notes there, here's my question. Are there any nets that keep me from radical obedience, from getting out of the crowd and being one of his true disciples and followers? I got a bunch of them. I remember in college, a big one for me was tithing. Ugh. I was working three jobs trying to pay my way through college. And I would go to church and hear about this idea that I'm to give my first fruits for the Lord. And I said, that's for other people. That's for other disciples. I'm just barely trying to scrape by here. But I had to let go of that net. 
If I wanted to truly make him be the king in my life, I still got nets today that God's working on my life. Thankfully, discipleship is a process, but we must always be asking myself, am I radically willing to obey no matter what he asks? Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. And once you're ready to let go of those nets, he's going to ask you to join him and to join others in making him known. If you're on your notes, Jesus then calls us to go fish. Not just to talk about fishing. Not just once a Sunday to learn about fishing. But to actually go out and start fishing, becoming disciples who make disciples. When Jesus invited these first four guys to follow him, he's pretty clear on their agenda right up front. Here's what we're going to do, guys. You're going to follow me. You're going to learn from me for three and a half years. And I'm going to teach you to do what I'm doing. I want you to look at my way. I want you to see how I do this. And I'm going to teach you how to fish. You might expect Jesus to say to him, I want you to follow me and I'll make you more spiritual. I'll make you smarter. I'll make you better. I'll make you more wealthy. I'll make you more organized. But that's not what he says. He says, here's your purpose. Follow me and I will make you fishers of people. As one pastor says, followers eventually fish if they're really following. And I'm sure, maybe like you in this room right now, it scared these guys to death. They probably had no idea what Jesus was even talking about at this point. And yet, just like that, they drop their nets. And in obedience, they follow him in order to learn from him to do what he did. They learn the way of Jesus. Now, we'll see as we continue in our study of Mark They're not very good at this at first. In fact, they're terrible. We read stories of them shooing away little children who want to come and talk to Jesus. We read stories of them arguing about which one of them is the greatest. But if you ever read Acts, it's incredible. It actually begins to happen. Jesus ascends to heaven and he sends his spirit and they begin fishing for people. How? Not because they learned the four spiritual laws. Not because they went to a class at church on discipleship, but because they apprenticed Jesus, as Brian says. And they learned the way of Jesus. And just as important, if not most important, they were empowered by the spirit of Jesus. The same spirit that empowered Jesus at his baptism. The same spirit we sang to give us a fresh wind and a fresh fire to see our community with new eyes. Listen, Jesus' agenda for us today is the same it was for his disciples back then. And like those four guys, I know, trust me, I know, this can be a little confusing and scary and uncomfortable. You're not going to be very good at it first, but just like them as we saw last week, you now have his spirit in you, in your life. And if you're following, the Holy Spirit empowers us as we make ourselves available. Here's what we need to understand. Just like bearing fruit for God's glory, we talked about this in John 15, only comes by abiding in Jesus. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing in the same way. Being a disciple who makes disciples only happens as we're empowered and led by the Spirit of God. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. I've said this my whole life. I'm not good at this. We make excuses, right? It's so difficult to think, yeah, I can do this. Jesus is going to empower me to do this. No, leave that to the professionals, right? Leave that to the professional. I got to tell you a funny story about that. Like sometimes I think, oh, we're really good at that as pastors. We're not really that good at it. We're just like you, ordinary people, not the best and the brightest, 
but Jesus still calls us. I'll never forget when I was in seminary, uh, the seminary owned like half an acre of this really nice golf course. And so we got to go golf there and the members there loved that. And I remember every time I would tee off on the first hole and I was playing with someone else, we'd be walking up the first fairway and the person would ask, so what do you do? And I would say, well, I go to seminary. I'm going to be a pastor. We didn't talk the rest of the entire round of golf. It's so difficult, right, to not see ourselves sort of like, I I can't do that. Leave that to the professionals. Or that person has a way better story than mine. My story is boring. I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't speak very well. I'm reading Exodus right now. This was Moses over and over again, right? I'm not educated enough. I don't know all the right answers. I hear that one a lot, right? You got to be an expert on apologetics to share the faith. No, you don't. I'm an introvert. Me too. It's impossible to look at our individual lives and think, I have the potential to fish. And so what happens is we become paralyzed that, in that group, like that group in the story I read in the beginning, right? We talk about this, we come to church, and we learn about this, but we're never actually bold enough to go out and do it. So I'll just be straight up honest with you right now. I'm going to say what we're all thinking. You are not qualified to be a disciple maker. You're not. I'm not qualified to be a disciple maker, but he is qualified. And his promise is he will call you, show you the way he does it, and then empower you with the same spirit that empowered him. Seeing your everyday life as an opportunity to both show and tell the good news that the kingdom of God is here. In fact, here's the big idea for this whole morning. I want you to consider, is it possible, think about this, that God has perfectly positioned you in your normal sometimes boring, everyday life to be a disciple maker. He puts you in the perfect lake for fishing for you. He's just waiting for you to start casting. Is it possible he's given you your exact past, your exact personality, your exact job, your exact family, your exact gym membership, your exact single momness, your exact neighborhood, your exact experiences, your good ones and your bad ones, so that you can leverage those in someone else's life that he has put in your pond? Is it possible that there doesn't have to be all this pressure and guilt? That it's just seeing your everyday normal life with new eyes, with fresh lenses, and saying, Lord, where are you at work right now? And where can I join you in that work? If you're following, listen, God already has me exactly where he wants me to fish. You just need to start fishing. If you don't think this is how discipleship really works, let's do a little experiment. I want you to think about the person or persons that were most influential in you becoming a disciple of Jesus. Or maybe the person you went through a rebellious stage or something in your life, the person that brought you back to Jesus. Raise your hand. How many of you, it was Billy Graham? Got one. That's about what I thought. 99 out of 100 maybe were led to Christ by Billy Graham or someone like that. How many of you was a normal, ordinary person that brought you to faith in Christ? That's the beauty, the beauty of God's plan. Ordinary people being filled by the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit, seeing our everyday normal lives as the place that we can make disciples. 
There's a lady in our church right now. I just heard this story this week who just shops at the same grocery store and started a conversation with a woman there who was going through a very difficult time. She was aware of what was happening and she's began to serve her, to bring her groceries, to do small acts of service like that. And my question is, why can't you be like that in someone else's life? Why can't I? There's no pressure. There's no guilt. Why? Because I have no power in myself to change someone's heart. Only God has that kind of power, but he has strategically placed me in this lake right here, right now in Springfield. And he makes me, he says to me, be more aware of where you're going and what you're doing. And when those moments come, jump on them. It's like what Paul writes in Colossians 4, 6. Can we read it out loud together there? It says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders Make the most of every opportunity. Friends, if you're on your notes, making disciples happens by looking for divine opportunities in our daily lives. The problem is we're just not looking. I know I'm not. This is how I go about life. Whatever's right in front of me, whatever is going on in my life today, whatever problems, whatever worries that I have, it's simply being more wise and looking for the opportunities that God has been giving to us. And I tell you, there's not going to be a whole lot of fireworks about this. It's just about those simple ways of engaging in relationship. I was at our son's basketball game the other day, and the coach's wife with their two little daughters was sitting there in front of me. And normally, I'm just, I don't, I wouldn't care. But because I knew I was preaching on this, I thought I got to be more aware. And I just did it. I just went and talked to her. I just said how much we're grateful for the way this coach has influenced Will this year in his life and so on and so forth. And at that moment, she got down on her knees and she, no, she didn't. <laughs> That's what we think, right? We believe this lie has got to be this huge, big fireworks thing. It doesn't. It's just being aware of the people God has put in our path, in our lake, in our pond. And saying, how can I be wise and make the most of this opportunity right here, right now? Too often I'm blind to those things. Disciple making is as simple as living every day on the lookout for that unique divinely appointed opportunity, not to be some fisher to the masses like Billy Graham, unless that's what he calls you to do, but to look for the one guy on your street, the one lady in your office, the one parent on your kid's sports team, the one person you did a deal with last week at business, or this is huge, the children in your home. This is our supreme purpose as Jesus' disciples. He's given you a new identity, and now he's given you a new call. If you're following, making disciples is God's invitation to a lifetime of adventure. You guys know I'm a big J.R.R. Tolkien fan, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit. Right in the beginning of his Hobbit, there's a boring, plain, ordinary Hobbit named Bilbo. And he likes his boring, plain life. Until one day, Gandalf, who is the Christ figure in most of Tolkien's writings, shows up at his door and he invites him to go on an adventure. And at first, Bilbo wants no part of this adventure. In fact, he says to him as he's slamming the door in his face, I don't want any adventures, thank you. Not today. Good morning. Slam. But it got into him. He realized there's more to life than just sitting at home doing nothing. And he ends up joining Gandalf on the adventure of a lifetime. And he would have missed out on it 
if he didn't accept the invitation. My question for you, will you miss out? Or like Bilbo and Peter and Andrew and James and John, will you be willing to join Jesus in his mission of bringing the greatest news that any person could ever hear into this world? There's nothing better. Money's not better. Bigger house isn't better. There is nothing better than giving your life away to Jesus so that more people will hear the good news that the king has come and his kingdom is available to them. Amen. As we close, here's two questions for you just to consider as we prepare ourselves for communion. The first question I have for you, very practical, who has God already placed in my everyday life? What ponds has he put you in? What lakes are you in? I might even encourage you to take your notes and turn them on the back and start writing out some very some names. Again, there's no pressure here. Start praying for them. Start praying for yourself to have more of a desire, to have eyes that see, to be wise if opportunities are made available to you. And then second, will I obediently accept Jesus' call to be a disciple who makes disciples? That is what a disciple does. So let's just take a couple of moments. I hope you can use this time and prayer and consideration. And then we'll take communion together. to you need to be more intentional with the kids in your home you need to take the airpods out at the gym pay more attention you need to learn the barista's name at your favorite coffee shop everyday life look like? Who has God placed there? What nets are you holding on to? joining us today. If you'd like more information, visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook.